Welcome back, everybody. Listen to another episode of Drive Into the Basket. This is Mike. Uh, I've had already way too much coffee today. Uh, posting this one a little bit late in the morning, or at least late in the morning my time, due to some kind of poor time management. Uh, last night, I usually record on Tuesday nights and post really early, so sorry about that. So uh, let's launch right into it, uh, and we've actually got a latest news item, which is that the Pistons have brought back Kevin Knox, who was in the team last season, with the 15th roster spot, which was open until today. So uh, I actually uh, like Kevin Knox, sort of, like not as an actual guy who's really going to contribute to your team, but as a, uh, a decent depth guy who is or who for the Pistons last season at least was a pretty decent three and transition guy and you know finished some plays off of cuts you know just a solid play finisher and uh, of course was completely dispensable he was sent out as part of the the Sadiq Bay James Wiseman trade so I think he's a decent warm body, so to speak for the Pistons who are currently missing a lot of guys does make me a little bit concerned about the injury outlook uh, at forward. Right now, you've got Alec Burks, who can play up to small forward, uh, Boyan, of course, and Isaiah Livers, all injured. And the fact that they would bring on Knox using the remaining roster spot, maybe it's just against the possibility of, you know, hey, we've started the season with a lot of injuries, and we just want a guy who we feel like can just fill in in some minutes, uh, you know, under current circumstances and, and maybe in the future, and we've got the roster spot open. So, you know, why not? He's somebody we know. We liked him last year. Uh, there's also the possibility that that is true as well as one or more, probably more, of the current injuries to the forward core, uh, particularly Livers and Boyan, is, I, I would guess, if this is the case, then they're looking at a couple of those being worse than expected, and, and they want somebody to, to, to be around to play those minutes if necessary because the Pistons are pretty thin at forward right now. Uh, Knox can conceivably play minutes at power forward. Uh, he's about 6'7", 210, which makes him a little bit undersized, but not terribly so. So, yeah, that's the part of the signing that concerns me a little bit. It could be absolutely nothing. It could just be, hey, we really don't like what's happened so far as far as injuries, and we just want to make sure we've got somebody to pick up the slack if this happens again. So in any case, uh, welcome back, Kevin Knox. For those of you who didn't really watch him as much last season, uh, I pretty much just already said all there is to, to, to say about him. Uh, he was actually a fairly strong perimeter shooter for the Pistons after a, a really slow start. He shot around 42-ish percent from three on decent volume, I think around three and a half attempts per game for the remainder of his time with the Pistons. He is long, he's athletic, he runs the floor very well in transition, he can finish lobs, he can finish cuts. Now you might be wondering why that sort of player went unsigned, and the answer is, well, number one, he's not the greatest on defense. He's not terrible, but below average, the IQ on that end just isn't really all there. And on offense, he's highly situational, but the biggest thing is that he has yet to put together a significant stretch of play as, you know, anything like a significant stretch of play outside of the Pistons, which really wasn't many games on a really bad team. It's just for the vast majority of his career, he has been bad, and his his perimeter shot, which, I mean, the, the guy is, well, he's a 30, 34% shooter now, but, but very, very inconsistent, and he's just kind of a, a replaceable rotation player. Like, the Pistons aren't bringing in a guy here whom you can expect to be really good on the court. He's just kind of decent for a pretty poor team that needs to fill minutes. So, like I said, I feel kind of like a little bit silly because the the profile of the player I just told you about sounds way better than he actually is. But, 
you know, if he can make those shots, run in transition, whatever. The guy is really going to have to impress in order to keep a roster spot when, uh, you know, the Pistons uh, currently injured players come back. But in the meantime, I think it's a solid signing. Uh, There's literally no cost signing, well, aside from the money and in the cap space. I don't even know if it's fully guaranteed. Um, but, you know, it's you use your 15th roster spot, which loses you a little bit of flexibility, but not much. You can always waive a guy, too, if you really want to. If you got to move somebody out and trade, you can always send out Kevin Knox in a trade if you want to, uh, though it's three months until he can be traded, which uh, is very close to the deadline. Anyway, I'm getting way ahead of myself. So a uh, decent player to bring in with a lot of injuries. Just concerned about what this might mean for injuries, uh, the current injuries, but it could be nothing. So all that said, uh, let's move on to recent developments. So just something I want to cover is that the start of the NBA season is wonky, like really wonky across the board for almost every team. I mean, you see some extremes as far as players overperforming, underperforming, teams overperforming, underperforming. And it just takes, at the beginning of the season, it just takes time for things to settle out and for anybody to, you know, really get, in, in my opinion, a solid grip on where things are really going and where things really stand. You can see some guys come out and really struggle. You can see some teams with uh, with decent talent come out and really struggle. Um, it's just uh, my opinion is always to, you know, give it until the 20-game mark before you're, you're really going to, in my opinion, have a good ability to to kind of project what things are going to look like for the rest of the season. Some guys come in and are themselves right away. Some teams come in and are themselves right away, and you just continue to get what you've already seen. But a lot of the time, things can develop, things can change, guys can get back into the rhythm of things. Uh, guys can stop shooting like 50-plus percent from three. <laughs> you know, some guys post absurd numbers at the beginning of the season before settling closer to the mean. All I'm saying is, uh, you know, reserve judgment a bit, in my opinion. And that applies to all the players for the Pistons um, and and also to you know situations with the Pistons I, I feel like that there are some conclusions being prematurely drawn on uh, I'm just going to go over a couple in particular uh, prematurely in, in the sense of just insufficient data and maybe being a little bit overly alarmist in my opinion now, that's just my that's just my take on things, but uh, let's go over let's go over two of those, which I think uh, which I, th- I think we're being a little bit premature, or uh, put it this way, I'm which I think it may be easy to to be a little bit prematurely worried. I mean, it's perfectly reasonable to to be worried about things. I'm not not saying that that anybody should be should not be worried um, about you know whatever they want to worry about, or you know should not level you know levy any whatever criticisms they feel like. I'm just saying, in my opinion, best to best to give it some time. So uh, one we can talk about is Cade, and I'll say this about Cade: Cade has does not look like himself right now. now. We didn't get to see him much last season. We did get a full year out of him, well, most of a year, about three quarters of uh, three quarters plus change of a year. And the, the first, the early stages of his rookie season were not good by any measure. I mean, of course, he was coming off coming into the NBA cold as a rookie having missed all of training camp for the most, almost all of training camp and in all of preseason and not really being in game shape. Uh, it's not an easy situation. Really took him until kind of late November to fully come online. But after that, I feel like we got a good idea and we got a good picture of that, of the player Kate can be uh, or a promising picture of Kate as a rookie. And, and Kate as a rookie had his issues. He, you know, was not particularly efficient though. If you look at how he really looked after that first difficult stretch, he wasn't, you know, the horribly inefficient player. He, he kind of looked like uh, his true shooting 
from that point on was, I believe, in the low 50s, around 52%, which isn't ideal. But for a guy who's coming in and being the unequivocal primary option and primary handler as a rookie for a bad team, uh, that, that wasn't bad. Um, he was uh, a pretty strong passer, uh, still a little bit turnover prone, nowhere near as much as he is right now, and, and could skip in and make the right reads and make the right passes. And that was the case in his very truncated season last year. And it's worth noting, I think, that this is just a fact that I appreciate is that Cade has only just played his 82nd game in the NBA. You know, there was his rookie season. He played last season uh, a very short time on a leg that would ultimately require season-ending surgery. I think that made it kind of harder to, to get a decent sample size. There was not a decent sample size last year. So Kate this season as a passer has looked really bad. I believe at the time I'm recording this, he's leading the league in turnovers and is nowhere near to leading the league in assists. He, I don't know what's up. I mean, maybe it's just a very long time away from the game, but he is not acting as the really cerebral, really smart, really think several steps ahead sort of player that we've seen in the last season plus 10%. Uh, he's just making a lot of really bad passes. This is not, in my opinion, have anything, uh, excuse me, this does not, in my opinion, have anything to do with uh, teams having caught on. He's just making a lot of really, really ill-advised, easily interceptable passes. Even when he's off the bounce, I mean, his passes are not hitting the mark. He's he's just throwing inaccurate passes. Even when his teammates catch them, they're not catching them in shooting position, driving position. And right now, he just, yeah, he does not look like himself mentally. Physically, I'm going to give it some time. I mean, he's looking a little bit slower, but he had surgery on his leg. He's not in game shape yet. I think that that much, in my opinion, is pretty clear, especially with how gassed he is in fourth quarters. But mentally speaking, he just, he doesn't look like the player that he has been so far in the NBA and the player he was in the NCAA, of course. So I'm not sure what's up with that. I mean, you got to think that that's going to, to, to gravitate back toward the mean um, because Kate is a very smart player. And, and right now, I don't know if he's in his head or what, but he's making just a lot of bad decisions, bad decisions that we didn't see him make uh, as a rookie in the NBA. Well, I mean, he made some of them, but it's far worse right now. Kate, even as a rookie, would make passes into lanes that would have remained open in the NCAA, but uh, do not in the NBA. Those lanes close very, very quickly, and and so passes into those lanes that are quickly closing are going to get intercepted. So hasn't been good so far. The spacing, uh, of course, should be brought in. That is a factor, I think, in, in some of the struggles he's had. The spacing on this team is not merely poor, but is actually comically bad. I'm not going to talk about the starting lineup again, uh, in part because you've heard enough about it, I have no doubt, in part because it agitates me. But this is spacing the likes of which no coach who is actually trying to win games would throw out there in the starting lineup. It's that bad. Uh, even a coach who's really trying to win games is not even going to throw one shaky or one kind of non-shooter from the perimeter. And Asar is basically a spacing liability at this stage, uh, let alone, you know, two with uh, Killian, who's had a good game uh, against the, you know, I'll talk about Killian later, but had a good game against uh, the Warriors. And that was a fun game to watch overall. But on the season, it's, still pretty poor and is in general pretty uh, pretty uh, pretty unreliable and and Cade very rarely is playing in a lineup with four shooters so uh, that's an issue I feel like it's it's so ubiquitous when he drives in that he's getting swamped that it can at times almost be difficult to see what's happening because it's just it's the norm rather than the exception so that's not helping things that's not helping his ability to get to the rim that's not helping his ability to score efficiently it's not helping anything at the same time Cade needs to be smarter about the turnovers and he's such a smart player that I think he'll get 
I think he'll get back to where he was before and hopefully even better. But right now he's having issues, though not issues that worry me because we already know how smart he is. His injury was to his leg, not to his head. So I think we'll be fine there. I, I do encourage people to, I mean, it's just like last year, for example, or the last several years where it's like, okay, the Pistons, when it came to Dwayne Casey, for example, who I had a pretty low opinion of as a coach, and I promise I'm not going to talk any further about that. But it's like he also had a bad team. But, you know, both of these things can be, were true simultaneously. He was a poor on-court coach who was coaching a poor team. It wasn't just, oh, Casey has a bad team or, or oh, Casey has a poor coach, though I think that existed independently of his... Yeah, those those factors existed independently of each other. And I, I think it's the same thing with Cade here, uh, that the spacing sucks and he's just got to get his decision-making under control. I think both of those things are true and both of those things are factors. So uh, I think additionally, a third factor is just, you know, wait and see, wait until we're at game 20. Uh, the guy is coming back from a lengthy absence. It'll help when he has better shooters around him as the Pistons are missing a great deal of shooting on the bench. And uh, Marcus Sasser has, has definitely been a pleasant surprise. I'll talk about him as well. Um, I don't know. That's, that's just my philosophy on this. It's just, uh, you know, wait a bit and we'll see. Uh, and I feel like getting concerned at this stage is a little bit premature. And uh, yeah, I'll just wait until we have a greater sample size and things settle down. Uh, number two would be Jaden Ivey. I know this is a very controversial subject uh, amongst Pistons fandom. Uh, Ivey, who is kind of getting some tough love from Monty Williams and... Again, very early. I think the guy has played five games. And is he probably happy about seeing his minutes and his usage? Well, maybe not his usage when he's on the court, but his minutes and his role pretty drastically reduced from last season? No. Do I think that five games or even 10 games or even 20 or 40 games uh, of this, of him still having a significant role, just not what he had last season and playing still from the bench is going to leave him incredibly disgruntled and, uh, you know, ruin his relationship with the coach and the team. Uh, no. And I think the notion that he's, that it's already having a very negative, a negative effect is sort of far-fetched. I mean, for Ivy, even after 20 games to become incredibly upset about this would give him Allen Iverson levels of entitlement. I mean, this this would be kind of an extreme. The guy's a second-year player who still has things to work on. Uh, really, by all accounts, he's, he's very much a team-first guy who just wants to work hard and improve and, is, and was fully cognizant of his flaws on defense last season. Uh, but, I mean, if the guy cannot... Hand, and, and everything we've heard is that uh, Monty Williams, you know, the focus is on defense right now. It's not because that's the way he thinks is best to win games. He knows that feeling really weak offensive lineups. I mean, not that the starting lineup as a whole has been strong on defense, which is just not the case. But he knows that fielding defense first lineups with too little shooting is not going to win you games. You just, you can't punt on offense in today's league. Defense is still important. You absolutely, absolutely cannot punt on offense to field a better defense. And that's what the Pistons have been pretty much doing. So the focus is on defense, I think, for the sake of making a point um, and just improving or whatever you want to say. I never like to use the words building a culture because I think that's kind of trite and not necessarily entirely applicable. The, the winning culture is the one I dislike the most because, you know, any any team that's winning is, wouldn't you say, by default, building a winning culture and the team with, you know, it isn't a team that's winning more, have a better winning culture or something, or, you know, you put two teams or do you 
does it end after a point? I mean, do you reach maximum winning culture? And at that point, I mean, the team with the more talent wins. Of course, also Tom Gores was obsessed with, you know, the winning culture thing and for a long time tried to run the team as a venture capital project. You know, let's just get the right attitude in here. You know, let's uh, let's get the right culture in here. And then we're just going to start winning games, even, you know, if you don't have anywhere near the talent to actually do so, which which was the case for a long time before he finally stepped back and uh, and let, the, you know, some professionals run the team, some honest-to-goodness professionals, though he still makes a lot of reference to culture. I think it's uh, just his thing, but fortunately he's not impressing his vision upon people and forcing them to operate in a certain way anymore. Uh, whatever the case, uh, I digress. So, uh, yeah, the focus is on defense right now. Amani has come out and said that there are some non-negotiable mistakes on defense. And, uh, yeah, there are apparently flaws on offense that are much more negotiable. And, you know, that that is what it is. I mean, I, I don't think... Uh, I, I think that Ivy at this point really struggles a lot on on defense. I mean, last season he was possibly the worst defender on a team that had a fair amount of really bad defenders between he, uh, James Wiseman, Marvin Bagley, and, and Boyan. Boyan, who I would say uh, was the fourth worst defender, isn't the disaster I think he's, he's played out as. I think he's decent enough and a solid, uh, you know, when he's surrounded by somewhat decent defenders and even, even when he's not, it's just as long as the defense around him isn't terrible. But yeah, Ivy was definitely part of that, that bottom of the barrel trio with, with Bagley and Wiseman. So he's got stuff to work on, but it's like if he is willing to detonate mentally after 10 games of having to deal with this, then he is not a player the Pistons want. That's not on him. Or excuse me, that's not on Monty. That would be on Ivy and for and on Troy Weaver for horrendously misjudging his character. I don't think that's the case. And, you know, Ivy's a big boy. He can handle it. So I wouldn't, uh, I, I, I mean, I'd encourage, whatever, I don't want to encourage people to think in a particular way. In, in my opinion, best to, uh, things are going to be fine. And um, I, I'm not going to worry about it right now. Worry, I don't think it's we're at anywhere near the point at which it's time to start worrying about Jaden Ivey's relationship with the team. You know, if he is who we say he is and he's a reasonable NBA player, then, I mean, this is this is not an established dude who has brought him with a, you know, with a huge role. And, and is now not being given what he had been promised. This is a second-year player who has a lot to improve upon. You know, and if he's got the attitude we think he does, I mean, he can handle it. Vast, 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 vast majority of young NBA players are just going to take this in stride. They won't be happy, and that's fine. And I know we heard from Brian Windhorst yesterday that I don't think Ivy is happy on the bench, and whether or not that's actually, you know, there's actually anything to it or just speculation. Uh, because Winhorst comes up with a lot of juicy locker room tidbits, you know, tidbits and in, in quotation marks, because a lot of them, they, they're just never referred to again and can't really be confirmed or denied. And nobody else reports on them. Uh, and and Winhorst just in general, uh, I, I just don't think is, I think he's kind of like a, a controversy hound. And even sometimes his reporting on transactions is accurate. And sometimes it's, it's the same thing. It's like, oh, he, he's the only one who has it that, you know, that the, the team is thinking about this. And, and nobody else ever reports on it, and nothing has ever heard about it again. Uh, whatever the case, uh, you know, he, he may be right. Ivy may not be happy, you know, playing from the bench. Uh, and that would make sense if he's not happy about playing for the bench and having a much smaller role and much less minutes. Uh, at the same time, it's okay for players to be unhappy about things. You know, you can be, just like in real life, you can be unhappy about things, you know, without, like in your workplace. Like, I don't like what I'm doing without um, going flying completely off the handle and blowing things up. Um, and this this is professional basketball. So, Ivy, 
No things to be happy about in this play. He's, he's been a lot better at attacking the rim. His three-point shot has been good. He's shown you know some, some real aptitude to build on last season's ability to shoot threes off the dribble. And would I like to see him play more? Yes, because I enjoy watching him play on offense. And I think he'll get there. I don't, I don't think the state of affairs is going to last for good. And no, and I sure hope I'm not wrong about this, I don't think that he's being held out of games under the pretense of sickness. Uh, sometimes you get sick and it takes you a while to recover. So just uh, another thing that uh, on which I think that judgment should be reserved until a little bit later. Uh, moving on to Killian, and uh, this is going to be, uh, I should just note, a little bit uh, shorter of an episode than usual. Though I often say that, and it ends up being quite a bit longer than I anticipated. I digress. All right. Uh, moving on to Killian, who who did definitely have a strong game uh, against the Warriors. And that was just a fun game to watch, which the Pistons, in uh, you know, who were just incredibly uh, undermanned at this point and are missing a lot of firepower, played against a genuinely good team on the second night of a back-to-back. The Warriors were on the second night of a back-to-back as well. But uh, the Pistons, uh, you know, with a not strong roster, you know, played a, stra- a scrappy game. And, and made it close. And, and part of that was that the Pistons shot incredibly well, and the Warriors did not shoot well at all. They shot under 30% overall. Clay Thompson couldn't shoot. Curry uh, got cold in the middle of the game, <laughs> though there was a part of the game, like in, in the late third, where the camera uh, zoomed in on Curry, and he was smiling. And uh, I think it was George Blaha said, I don't trust that smile. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Curry's just amazing. I mean, the, the guy probably has more responsibility than anybody for for the NBA's evolution into the current era. And it's just his ability as a shooter is just really something else. His conditioning off the ball is incredible. I mean, he's, he's a very good shooter on the ball as well. But you could say he's arguably the greatest off-ball, uh, off-ball scorer, uh, off-ball perimeter scorer of all time. I think that I would say that without any equivocation. Just the guy's ability to get open and shoot an accurate shot in an incredibly short amount of time with very little space. His release takes 0.6 seconds. They've timed it. That is insane. His accuracy is absurd. And a funny thing, I mean, his, his younger brother, of course, is the, uh, is the drastically lesser of the two and still is one of, I think, the highest, still the highest percentage three-point shooter of like the last significant number of seasons. A lot of talent in that family. So yeah, Curry, Curry's a cheat code. Uh, I also just love the guy. I think there's nothing not to love about the guy. He does like to, uh, you know, rub it in a bit when his team is ahead, uh, like the whole, you know, sleeping gesture and, and the stink eye and whatnot. But I'm not going to begrudge him that. I think, uh, you know, by all accounts, he's just a, a super good dude and uh, and a great sportsman and, and just an amazing talent. So uh, whatever the case, you know, regardless of how well guys in the Warriors did and how well guys in the Pistons did, it, it, was, it was fun to watch regardless of the loss. And Killian came in and did well. He, uh, you know, did, he shot well from three. That's all he needs to do to be to be a solid NBA player. You know, to be a long-term rotation player, be a reliable like high 30s percent three-point shooter when you're left wide open. All right, you can do that. Guys have to guard you. You can finish plays from the perimeter, and you can add that to your ability to play fairly solid defense. I don't think he's an elite defender, um, and uh, you know, be a smart offensive player who is not turnover prone at all, makes the right pass, talented passer, though, you know, there, there are a list of butts with Killian, of course, you know, even, even in that situation, he's a guy, one of the reasons he's, he's not turnover prone. I mean, part of it is just that he's a very smart passer. I don't think that Killian could ever be accused of being anything but a high IQ player on offense as, as far as his passing is concerned, at least. But one of the reasons he's so turnover prone is he never passes from a dangerous position. That sounds good on paper. 
but the reason for it is actually pretty negative. The reason is that he doesn't actually attack and break down defenses. He is not the sort of player who is going to penetrate into uh, you know multiple coverage and and make a pass out from from that situation. That's you know what your best playmakers do. That's what your lead guards do. Killian only passes around the perimeter and off the short drive. He is not at all respected by defenses uh, off the, on the drive because they know he's not going to get anywhere close to the rim. You know, they know he's not even likely to try. And the, I think he is attempted uh, in a half court, I believe well under 10, maybe less than five shots in the restricted area. Uh, that That's just in the half court, not if you include transition where he's had a couple of buckets in, in the restricted area. So, you know, useful as a secondary passer, but... Yeah, it just doesn't break down defenses at all. And right now, remains really weak from two-point range, like really, really weak from two-point range. That pull-up jumper he has is something that he managed to make like baseline, baseline half-court efficient last year for that, I don't know, five-week, six-week stretch in which he was playing well. The baseline, we're talking about like 48%. So far on the season, it's been 40%. And defenders will guard him, but this is not a very dangerous shot. Whatever the case. Uh, that's a bunch of butts. If he can at least shoot threes well, then he has probably a long-term role on this team. Uh, the question with killing is consistency. He has been one of the worst big-minute players in the NBA, and I'd say you know bottom three on on offense thanks to his awful scoring throughout his entire time in the NBA. You know, aside from that stretch in which he was able to just shoot on sort of below average efficiency, uh, not terribly below average, but not good because that that pull-up two is still his go-to. Uh, for a span of six weeks, the question with con- with Killian is consistency. Can you put this together? Uh, you know, can you put a long stretch together? Can you play like this in the long term? Basically, can you hit your threes? Can you hit your threes in the long term so that you can finish those plays on a perimeter? And it's it's an essential quantity, not not just. And basically, also, can you not be a spacing liability? Can you space the floor for your teammates and not actively cause them harm as a as a floor spacer? And because NBA teams. Uh, you know, almost every offense like prioritizes shooting open threes. And if you can't do that, then that's a problem. So just hit your threes at, at a reasonable percentage. It's going to take some time for him to prove that he did, that he's able to do that. Does it, Are the Pistons, I've seen this asked, are the Pistons just playing him to pump his trade value? I would be shocked if that is the agenda. I think that he is uh, starting because he's just the best defender available at the position. And also, you don't do this to to pump a guy's pumping a guy's trade value is kind of uh, it's I don't think that's ever often a reason for giving a guy big minutes, um, especially you know and if if you take Gilly into account specifically like the guy it's going to take him quite some time playing at a decent level in the NBA to establish even like second round pick trade value. Uh, you know, it, it it just kind of adds an edge to that. The fact that he is going to be a restricted free agent at season's end. So it's not like a team can have him and have a look at him for a season and a half. So, you know, in his case, I think it's, it's doubly unlikely just because, you know, it's going to take a while, but, uh, you know, and also if you have a player who has struggled for a long time and you just want to give him an odd, you know, an audition for other teams, though, uh, again, I think that's a very rare thing. You play him off the bench in in modest minutes you don't say here you're going to start in, in a starting lineup which already has one non-shooter on the perimeter and a non-shooting center one whose offense unless you can suddenly shoot you are virtually guaranteed to complete the destruction of and, and you've never been a good shooter you've always been a bad shooter so uh, to me very implausible um and i think if it were simply a matter of we we want to see what you can be he 
would not be starting for that purpose. Uh, whatever the case, hoping for consistency. As long as he can shoot, then cool. You know, you, you'll have a long-term role in the NBA. Maybe stick with the Pistons. But it's going to take him some time to prove that he can do that. But uh, nonetheless, always always good to see a positive. Uh, I think that's uh, you know a lot of us just preserve judgment about Killian because we've seen some some ups and and they don't last. So, but I hope that they do. Uh, speaking of shooting, let's talk Marcus Sasser. So my feelings on Marcus Sasser after the draft were, you know, why did the Pistons pick kind of a shooting specialist who's very lineup dependent because you can't really play him next to another small guard. And he's not really a guy who's going to lead your offense. He just doesn't have really a lead guard playmaking talent unless he's really got something extra in, in the tank as far as upside at age 23. But his his shooting and his tenacity and his defense have been great. And his just his energy is is really up there. Super hard worker. So shooting very well so far. He's a guy who is very willing. <laughs> you know, just, just never seen a shot that uh, that he doesn't like, really. Uh, just in, in the context of his ability to let it fly, even through pretty close coverage, uh, even off the, you know, off the move, that the shooting there has been great. He's a great off-ball mover. He's not super explosive, but he is quick. I can come, you know, can come around screens, go dash back and forth, get a, you know, get a, get a pass and, and take a shot and have it have a pretty good possibility of going in. Uh, he's clearly savvy, more of, you know, more of a veteran than the average guy comes in who comes in. And I mean, that makes sense. Your fourth year players, your four year players in the NCAA are going to come in in a readier state. You know, you get concerned if they're not. So he's been able to come in and contribute right away. You know, even just guys who can dash around the perimeter and uh, and hit motion threes and also just hit their spot up threes at a high percentage. Those guys are going to be valuable. The defense really needs to, they're good at getting open. The defense needs to needs to account for them and keep tabs on them. It's easy to get them open. You just set them some off ball screens, and uh, and they're just they're a factor that the defense has to account for. And and the reliable quantity as perimeter shooters. And again, that's that's very very valuable in the NBA. He's done a little bit in the way of attacking the interior, mostly just floaters. Uh, even in the NCAA, he wasn't very good at getting to the rim because he's not all that explosive and he is undersized and not a very good leaper. Again, if these were not the case, then he would have gone higher. Well, the undersized part is just there. But if you were you know, explosive and, and a good leaper and good at scoring at the rim, which isn't particularly common in guys his size, but they do exist, uh, then, then of course, he would have gone higher, especially for a good playmaker. So there's, there's a reason he was taken at 25. And he doesn't need to be necessarily all those things, just being a, a very strong shooter who can also play solid defense, which he can, that's a valuable player. So uh, on defense, solidly built, you know, long enough, though. I mean, he did struggle against Josh Giddy, and he will struggle against players who can just score over him. But doesn't back down, plays hard, uh, plays smart, is quick, good at navigating screens. He's been fun to watch. Uh, where does he stand when the Pistons have a healthy bevy of guards? That's a question. He's going to have to fight for minutes. I think once Ivy has a larger role, which I'm, I think is, is fairly, I think can be said with a high degree of confidence that he will, whatever happens. Uh, I think so anyway. So when Burks is back, um, you know, when, when Ivy is, is around, even just having Burks back, that you can play him up the small forward a little bit. And if you want to give any minutes to Killian still, uh, there are just a, a lot of guys fighting for minutes at that position or competing for minutes at that position. But he's been a bit of a bright spot so far, and, and that's always good to see. And you really do want these guys who are being, being brought in after four years in the NCAA to be able to contribute right away. But he's been better able to contribute than I anticipated. And uh, now just some miscellaneous points to finish off the episode or just some kind of shorter talking points. Uh, Marvin Bagley... Um, I don't know. I hate to just strike for something purely negative. Of course, I'm 
never going to not do that in this show, I uh, think has been worse than his performance would suggest this Bagley. I don't know why Monty is having, not having him shoot the ball because Bagley really needs that in order to be an effective player. His, his defense needs to improve, improve as well, of course. And I always have my doubts about that, but needs to be stronger on offense. There's uh, been just a little bit too much posting up. Uh, which is fine against fairly weak competition. But when he's playing against the better defenses in the league, just the way he's playing right now, which is just kind of take the ball uh, on the on the block and try to attack the rim is, is it's just not all that valuable. He doesn't pass still. Like he just, he doesn't make the right reads and decisions on either end, including, and you know, and that's, that's true on offense as well. You just, if you know, if your goal is to just get the guy, the ball there constantly and just have him attack that's just his one trick pony who doesn't really generate any, he doesn't really parlay that to generate high percentage opportunities for his teammates. He's just, in my opinion, he's still been pretty unimpressive. On defense, he's been less of a liability than I thought, though that's chiefly against teams that aren't running a scheme that is forcing him to make a lot of decisions. Um, I just, I just feel like Marvin Bagley doesn't have a long-term future in the NBA. James Wiseman, of course, hasn't really gotten much of a shot when he has been on the floor. He's looked absolutely horrible. Uh, that's not very encouraging. It makes me a little sad that the Pistons passed up on five second round picks that they could have gotten instead of him. Uh, that's a not inconsiderable package, you know, for just for what it's worth. Second round picks do have value, and four of those were unprotected for a, a Hawks team, which is mired in mediocrity. Uh, not a team. I, I wouldn't expect those picks, at least you know, at least in short order, to be in the and necessarily in the 30s anywhere. I think they'll make the playoffs, but they're also not picks in like the late 50s. Um, as far as, you know, revisiting the, the Sadiq Bay trade, I just, I continue to not know what to think. Like we know that James, that, excuse me, that Weaver was very high on James Wiseman in 2020 draft year. We've heard definitively that Wiseman was number one in his draft board, which for me is a little bit frightening given that the Pistons really needed a lead initiator. And if you're going number one overall as a center, you better be extremely good. And, and to this point, I mean, Wiseman, I've said it many times that he just hasn't really had much seasoning, but um, just doesn't look good. Usually guys can come in and contribute, you know, who are high picks can come in and contribute a lot faster than this, at least be very good at, uh, you know, on some level. And, and Wiseman just is not, you know, how much of the Bay trade and Sadiq, we can say this unequivocally, just completely fell apart on defense in season three, went from being serviceable to being horrible. And that's on him. And I don't know what that was about. Um, I, I I just I I can't think that's anything but a poor reflection on him in some respect because he can't he could do it he could play serviceable defense he just stopped doing it and was he going rogue on offense who knows if he was doing that that's on him as well there is the consideration of uh, you know that he was given up on pretty quickly after being kind of referred to as a pretty integral part of the future you know role player but uh, a guy whom the organization liked quite a bit how much of them being kind of quick to to move him was something really bad going on behind the scenes versus Troy Weaver having an opportunity to trade for James Wiseman impossible to say i'm not judging it either way does the trade look good right now uh no hopefully something better comes of it don't know what that's realistically going to be but who knows uh, it's hard not to look at it occasionally and think, though, that at least Sadiq Bay of two seasons ago. I mean, that's a useful floor spacer at the very least. Though, again, we, we don't exactly know what happened behind the scenes and the defense last season was absolutely terrible. And finally, just to kind of bookend the episode, uh, the Pistons so far. Um, I'm just, the Pistons, uh, there are a few factors. Number one, the schedule has been 
pretty darn easy so far. And uh, number two, well, three factors. Number two, the Pistons are missing a lot of players. And number three, it has not been many games. So these are just basically all combined. It's been kind of distressing that the Pistons are missing so many players. Also that they are playing against so many easy teams. And basically, we're just we're not getting a look at what this team actually, what this roster actually is and what it can actually do. And that was going to take time in any respect. But yeah, we just definitely don't have the roster right now. And I personally prefer seeing the Pistons play against good, healthy teams. I think that's the best way for a team to grow. It's also the best way of seeing what where this team is at the moment, particularly its young players, but the roster in general. And you know, the Pistons haven't really had many opportunities to play against good teams either. So I know it's been, yeah, for me, it's been sort of a dissatisfying season so far. It would be a lot more satisfying if the Pistons, but there's also that money has been kind of running lineups for, as I mentioned, for purposes that are not really winning related. I didn't expect the Pistons to come out and, well, actually I did, everything we heard was the Pistons wanted to come out and and focus on winning games. So this was a little bit surprising, but it's early, Um, you know, give it to to game 15, game 20 before, uh, before I start really making i don't want to say making conclusions but you know hopefully it's not too long before we see what this what, what we can really expect from this roster for the rest of the season and with that that'll round out today's episode as always folks thank you so much for listening catch you in next week's episode